Welcome back to the Sharpen Podcast. So you already know that I severed my ACL last spring and that I never got surgery on it. And guess what? Now I have a bucket handle tear on my meniscus on the same knee. I had to get surgery on it a few days after the injury and waiting that long caused some nerve damage in my leg. I'm about a month post-op and I'm slowly entering the world of physical therapy. I have to be in a straight leg brace, non-weight bearing for six weeks. It's rough. I'm really not a couch kind of gal. I've needed help with literally everything since my surgery. My partner and I have a pair of Rocky Talkie radios and I radio him every time I need anything at all. We use these radios nonstop during the last couple weeks after surgery where I was literally stuck in bed or on the couch. I partnered with the Rocky Talkie for a reason. These radios are lightweight, durable, and they work in the extreme cold. They have impressive battery life and solid range. I've used mine for literally every outdoor adventure, and now I'm using it to call for support in my house post-surgery. If you like discounts, get 10% off your radios with code SHARPEND at rockytalkie.com. The next two episodes of this podcast are also supported by Sterling Rope. A wet rope is heavy, hard to handle, and can be flat out dangerous. That's why Sterling developed their new line of dry climbing ropes using Zeros technology. Zeros is a whole new way to manufacture UIAA certified dry rope that's more effective, wear resistant, better for the environment, and only available from Sterling. Visit sterlingrope.com to learn more and use code SHARPEND for 15% off. This show is also supported by the American Alpine Club. Clara was a witness to a free solo accident and heavily involved in the rescue at a crag in Clarksville, Tennessee called King's Bluff. The climber was out alone on a weekday and Clara and her partner were the only other folks at the crag. The free solo climber was climbing on an unestablished route and ended up being rescued via boat on the Cumberland River. Tune into this episode to hear Clara's takeaways. I hope you enjoy. So my name is Clara. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I got into climbing kind of 2016, 2017, so about five years now. Um, I actually have worked at a gym here in Nashville for most of that time and over the last year have become an instructor and got my AMGA CWI, um, which is the indoor instructing uh, scope. Um, And I coach and stuff. And then full-time, I also work in video production, um, mostly on YouTube and also for a nonprofit. So kind of a conglomeration of things. A woman of many hats. Yes, many hats. Well, maybe <laughs> I'll actually see if you can't edit my video moving forward. <laughs> yeah. So what do you want to share with uh, with our outdoor community today? Yeah, so um, I listen to this podcast religiously because I love to learn about Um, how to be a better outdoor enthusiast. Um, And so I mostly sport climb, kind of a baby trad climber, only a handful of trad leads under my belt and then no like Alpine or anything like that. But um, most of my outdoor days, of which there have been many, have been pretty unremarkable, just, you know, par for the course. Um, And so this particular day, it was in December of 2021. Oh, that was pretty recent. Yes, it was very recent. <laughs> um, I was out with um, 
my partner, Kendall, my climbing partner, who we climb together a lot in the gym and a lot outside. Um, and we only wanted to do a half day this particular day. It was a Friday and we both had off work and the weather was just pretty bad. Um, and so normally in Nashville, most of the good climbing is in Chattanooga. That's like the closest place to go for like your real kind of world-class, you know, like projecting type routes. Um, but that's hour and a half to two and a half hours to any of the good crags. And so on a really questionable weather day, we didn't want to make that commitment and then just be rained out. Um, so we decided to go to King's Bluff, which is kind of our local crag. It's about 50 minutes from where I live in Nashville. Um, it's in Clarksville, Tennessee, and it's literally just a river bluff. It's on the Cumberland River and it's owned by the Southeast Climbers Coalition and they do a great job taking care of it. Um, <laughs> it gets it gets a bad rap because it's short. It's only like 30, 40 feet and people don't love the style there. Um, but what kind there's of rock been, is it? Um, I believe it's, it might be limestone. Mm -hmm. It's not sandstone. So it's a lot different than the rest of what we have in the Southeast. Um, it's really sharp. Um, so people don't tend to be a huge fan. <laughs> and is it generally sport climbing? It's pretty much all sport climbing. There's some trad there, although I've never trad climbed at that particular crag. And for the most part, I have never seen anyone out trad climbing there. It's not something that like, it's generally regarded as like where you take people out to learn because there's a huge, um, a lot of like five, three to five, seven range, which you don't always see, especially in the Southeast around Chattanooga. Like there's one five, seven at every crag, like not even on one wall, just like the entire area will have one five, seven. So if you're going out with a beginner leader, um, King's Bluff is really like, that's where it shines. Um, and on this particular day, we chose to do it because if we ended up getting rained out, we had only sunk 50 minutes into our drive out. And the approach is incredibly short. You basically park and then go down this super, super steep path, which we'll come back into play later, but super, super steep path and stairs down to um, a trail that the SCC, the Southeast Climbers Coalition has built along the riverbank. And then it like basically drops off another 20 or 30 feet into the Cumberland River. So it's a pretty narrow path that you stand on and then it just drops off into the river. Um, and then I'd say the tallest climbs are maybe, I think there are some climbs that are between 60 and 80 feet, but the bulk of things are about 40 feet. Um, so it's a good training crag. I would call it a good training crag, not really where you'd like pick your project for the season, but it's a good, like, I want to get some outdoor, I want to, you know, be outside today. I, I've been in the gym too much. I need to get out. It's kind of why we would end up at King's Bluff that day. And that particular day, um, we were the only people in the parking lot. It's got one parking lot. The SEC only owns the cliff line itself and the trail at the bottom. So they don't own any of the land on top there's just this one parking lot. And so you immediately, you pull up and you kind of know how many people you're dealing with. Um, so we were alone and we probably got there at like 11 AM. No, not like an early day. Um, hike down and we get started. Um, and we're probably about four, I think we were four routes in, which like I said, these are short routes. So you're kind of just like moving through it probably about four climbs in really through like warming up because it takes multiple short routes to get warmed up really through warming up and getting onto some harder stuff. And I remember I was going up on a route when we see a guy start walking down the path and, you know, 
I personally have never actually seen someone going out to free solo. Um, I have seen people do sketchy things at the crag, but I've never seen someone like just going out to free solo. And this guy just had his shoes clearly alone, no other gear. So we immediately, well, and a chalk bag. So we're immediately like, okay, he's free soloing. (laughs) Um, Okay. Interesting. You know, hope this, you know, hope, hope it goes okay for him. And he walks past us and we were um, at an area of King's Bluff called the Orchard Wall, which is the far climbers right end of the crag. Um, almost to the end of what they own and have developed. Um, And so we climb, I think I climbed, Kendall climbs, I climb again, I come down. And then at that point we hear something big falling and we both like- About how far away? I I would say 15 yards, like 30 feet from us maybe. I don't think we could have seen you know, trying to like replay it. I don't think we could have seen his body, but like when I looked to the side, I immediately saw all the leaves and like a mass falling from the top of the cliff line to the bottom. So like we knew immediately he had fallen from close to the top um, because we could see like something falling. Um, He was out of eyesight, I guess, I think, but like we could see all of the leaves and stuff on his way down. because it's very, there's a lot of growth. And in the place he was climbing, there's a lot of growth because he was on an unestablished route. Um, so there was a lot of like foliage that he ran into on his way down. Um, and so, you know, we're, we luckily were both on the ground when this happened. I had like literally just hit the ground and we hear, and he, I don't think he screamed. We just heard falling. You know, it's like a huge rock fall. Like you, you immediately hear it. And of course, both of us look at each other and we immediately know like the only thing that could be falling that's that big is the person we just saw walk by us. Um, so we run down the path. Um, and the first thing we do is identify that he is, so it was, you know, he did fall. We immediately identify like, okay, he's conscious. He can move his head. And then like the first order of business, um, he was very precariously halfway on the path and like halfway about to roll down the rest of the riverbank into the river. So, you know, if you've done any wilderness first aid, like one of the things if someone falls is you don't really want to mess with their spine as much as you can. But in the situation, like as soon as we could identify that he could move his head, we were like, okay, we need to like try to move you as little as possible, but as much so that you're not going to just keep rolling. Yeah. You want to keep him um, safe. You want to yeah. Him out of harm's way. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, right. So we kind of, you know, Kendall takes legs. I take the head and we kind of shift him. Um, and he was conscious and like talking and stuff. I think just in total shock. And we're trying to like assess what is going on. And it's very like, you know, I probably sound a little chaotic when I'm saying this because the whole thing was very chaotic because you're trying to see like, okay, where did you fall from? Are you going to go into the riverbank? How can we get you stable? So you're not going to keep rolling down. Um, And then realizing like, okay, no immediate, obvious, like no bone sticking out, but clearly major pain, a lot of blood, a lot of scrapes. Um, And so of course our first thing is like, can we call 911? And he immediately, 
like did not want us to call 911. And I would say this is our first mistake is just not making that call immediately on our own because this is a person who's just taken what we think was a 35, 40 foot tumble. I mean, the shock, he's just not in a place to make a decision. Um, and so we asked and we just shouldn't have asked. We should have just called no harm in calling because if he chooses to res- refuse services, you know, he chooses to refuse services. Um, but we kind of went back and forth with him about that for a couple minutes because I think he was really one in shock, but two, probably ashamed to be in that position. Um, he also didn't want to call his wife or anything. And so, you know, me and my partner, Kendall are kind of like (laughs) coming to terms of like, okay, like, you know, we, we got to figure something out because we are not medical professionals. We can't you're clearly very injured. Um, and we're starting to assess too. We're pretty far down the path from the entrance to the crag. So just to get him back to the entrance, um, is a little bit of a walk and all of Kings Bluff is pretty small. We're not talking about, we're not in any way like backcountry. We're not remote, but even if we were to get him to like the entrance path, it is that's super steep. It's a, it's a, it's basically a mix of a scramble and stairs. Um, and especially for like the two of us, we would not have been able to carry him, (laughs) even if we, you know, felt comfortable doing that, it literally wouldn't have been possible. So we're kind of like, I mean, we can't get you out and it doesn't appear that you can walk out. Um, so we kind of go back and forth like this for a little while until eventually, um, we all decide we're going to call 911. Um, And then emergency services arrives really quickly because Kings Bluff is in Clarksville proper, um, which is like a town outside of Nashville um, that's a decent size because it has a military base. Um, And so we like immediately hear the ambulances. And then it got interesting (laughs) um, because the thing that I guess I also, you know, realized as this is happening is that we are not getting any sort of backcountry or wilderness response crew. We're just getting... EMTs. Um, and so they come, I stay with, uh, the fallen climber while Kendall runs to the front to go receive, um, the EMTs and she leads them back to us. Um, and throughout this whole time, especially while we're like waiting for the EMTs, I had some basic first aid with me. So I was like treating, um, the really obvious, like bad, uh, scrapes and stuff that were actively bleeding. Um, you, you had, you actually had a little first aid kit with you. Yeah. So I always keep like my outdoor climbing bag just has like a, you know, the kind of, um, watertight backpacking first aid kit you can grab at REI or any major outdoor store. I just always keep one of those with me. Um, that's great. I've, I've that's only great. pulled it out a handful of times, but this was a time where I was like, you know, it might help a little bit. It might not help that much, but either way, like, I don't want you to get all these scrapes infected. (laughs) Um, so I was, you know, wiping them down and covering everything I could. Um, and then, yeah, so the EMTs get there and then really where it kind of went off the rails is I think they didn't know what to do (laughs) with this location. Like we're on this really narrow path there's a cliff on a cliff line on one side and then just this river bank that just like goes straight down on the other side and like for all of the SEC's efforts to keep this path well maintained 
there's been a decent amount of erosion. And there's like a lot of places where, you know, even walking single file, you feel kind of like, okay, I have to work to make sure I'm not going to slip off. So how are we going to evac this guy? Right. Yes. And um, we kind of talked to them and explained like, hey, okay, so we're at the end of, we're about at the end of the crag. And the very end of the crag is a place called the beach because the river actually comes up to the path. And so it's kind of a, you know, there's a rope swing down there. It's kind of like if you're out climbing on a summer day, you finish off by jumping in the river. So Kendall and I both knew like, yeah, if you walk like another couple like 30 yards or so there will be we'll have river access and so they decide they're going to do a boat rescue um so they're going to get a boat to come up to where the river access is so that problem is solved and not having to get him up to the parking lot which would be very difficult but now we still have to get him from where he is to the, the boat um and this is where i think the fact that we were in an actual like metro and not will like technically like where there was a wilderness response team um, kind of came into play um, because the EMTs actually had him walk. <laughs> they like picked him up and like had him walk. And the problem was they kept letting go of him when they themselves would feel unstable. <laughs> um, and they, I really wish that I had advocated for them to put him on a stretcher um, knowing what the terrain was. I really wish that I had like spoken up and been like, Hey, because of how hard it's going to be for anybody to walk this way, it's just not easy terrain. You're not going to be able to support another person like on both, you know, you can't have three across supporting him in between you. It's not going to work. Um, so you really need to put him on a stretcher and, you know, Kendall and I are both thinking that, but we didn't say it because we felt very like, what's the place to say this to these EMTs who are just trying their best to do their job. Um, And I think the thing that was most upsetting is that we found out after the fact that the climber ended up needing pretty extensive ankle surgery. Um, And I kind of just wonder like, man, was that made worse by him having to get up and walk those like 30 yards from where he fell to the boat. Um, But yeah, eventually uh, they got him onto the boat. By that point, he was in a ton of pain um, because kind of the adrenaline and the shock had worn off. Um, But they took him off in the boat. And like I said, I followed up with him. I was able to get connected with him because we didn't know this person at all, but was able to kind of track him down on the internet. And he said the, the biggest thing was his ankle requiring major surgery. Well, how, how is it for you and your climbing partner to have witnessed that accident? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was one thing that was really, we talked about it a lot because all said and done, like I said, we probably got out there between like 10 and 11, maybe. This happened at like noon and then the whole ordeal is over by one. And we're like, okay, I mean, and we had been having a good climbing day too. And we're like, we could keep climbing, I guess. <laughs> and then we're just like, no, <laughs> yeah, no. And we just packed up our stuff and went and went into town and, you know, got some coffees and talked about how we felt about it. Um, my uh, climbing partner works um, in an environment full time where she sees a decent amount of trauma. So I think for her, uh, it was less shocking to witness something traumatic. Um, for me, as someone who really just like never witnesses anything like that in my day to day, 
um, I was honestly shocked by my own response and ability to handle the moment. I was like, okay, pat on the back. Good job. But after the fact, I was like, oh my gosh, like I've never seen anything like that. And even, you know, I said, I've, I've worked at a gym for a long time and gyms have accidents, but I've never been present or like the first responder to any of like any gym accidents even. Um, and none of my other outdoor days have really involved more than just like witnessing a sprained ankle. Um, so it was definitely just like the most intense thing to have witnessed and kind of derail the rest of the day where you go home and you're like, Oh, so what do I do now? (laughs) Um, so yeah, that part of it was really interesting. So what, what were your, what are your takeaways from this? Yeah. So kind of twofold, um, because I think, uh, for me on one end, I think there was a lot that I learned as far as just being a witness and first respond to an accident. Um, and I think anyone listening to this podcast is probably often finding themselves in situations where that could be you, <laughs> um, that comes across, across an accident first, or is, you know, right by an accident when it happens. Um, and it's not necessarily that you're responsible for responding, but it is good to like have that ability to respond in some way. Um, and I think a couple things that were really helpful for that is, I mean, we had, you know, our phones, which we were in, like I said, a metro area. So we knew going into it that our cell phones had service and we'd be able to use them. Um, so we were prepared in that way. Um, I, like I said, I always keep a basic first aid kit with me. Um, although something that I thought about after the fact was that that first aid kit didn't have gloves and I was dealing with someone and someone's blood. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And I'm dealing with someone that I don't, no. Um, so I've since kind of updated and like bulked up the first aid kit a bit. (laughs) Um, and that's something that like, I literally, when I say I leave it in the bottom of my climbing bag, I mean, it's literally just like in the bottom of my climbing bag at all times. And I feel like that's a really easy thing that anybody could do. Like whatever bag, that's the first thing you grab for any outdoor excursion, just having basic first aid in there, because also that could be the difference between you being able to like go on for the rest of the day, like cover up an injury and keep going or having to say, Oh, this could get infected. We need to get out now. Um, so having that basic first aid, um, and I'd also, it is lapsed, but I have taken wilderness first aid before. Um, and so kind of some of that basic knowledge as well. And it made me really want to retake that course, (laughs) um, to kind of be able to, you know, always remember, you know, even if it's not responding to a stranger, responding to someone in my own group, if there's an accident within my own group that I'm with, um, yeah, I'm just being prepared. Yeah, exactly. Um, because I think like, uh, especially something so interesting about this is like, I can't emphasize enough. And I said it at the beginning, but like, I can't emphasize enough how much Kings Bluff is just like your everyday, like you might as well be at the gym kind of. Yeah. But brag. that's when people get complacent, right? Like, exactly. Oh, it's so yeah. Home. It's so accessible. Yeah. You know, exactly. Well, and that's the thing. And so that's, what's so interesting is like, you know, I, um, last year I climbed devil's tower with, uh, one of my climbing partners and we took the whole thing so seriously. Right. Because it's like, it's trad, it's a big deal, you know, and even though it's heavily trafficked and like, obviously 
they've got rescue systems set up, like, you know, you're kind of freaked out. And so we like took the whole thing so seriously and nothing happened, right? Nothing happened to us. Nothing happened to anyone we saw. Um, and I think about that in comparison, cause it's really just like the total opposite in my mind of something where you go out and are doing like some big multi-pitch versus King's Bluff, which is like where I'd take my friend who has never climbed before. And I'm like, oh, it's fine. Like, just bring your tennis shoes. We'll get on a five, three. Like, that's the kind of place this is. Um, like you see, down. yeah, you see school groups out there all yeah. the time. Like it's a huge place to take like guided beginner groups. Um, so it's not the kind of place that you would ever expect to witness an accident. Um, and that also was kind of a wake up, wake up call of just one, yeah, complacency on your own end of like making sure you're doing what you can be to be safe and also be prepared to respond to an accident, you know, within your own group, if you have a problem, like I said, like, luckily, you know, we had cell phone service and we knew we would have cell phone service, but like having our cell phones handy, like that <laughs> was definitely important um, for calling 911 instead of being like, oh, we both left our phones in the car. I guess we have to run back to get that. Um, cause it's even like, like I said, it's not a long approach to the car. So I have been there before and just left my phone in the car. Um, because I was like, oh, if I need it, I can go get it. Like, so, you know, every little thing like that, that can easily add up. And that's just kind of on the witness side, um, with all of that. And what about his side? So the climber is a little more interesting. Um, I mean, because I think you immediately get into the mountain of debate over free soloing. Um, the mountain of debate <laughs> meaning like, should people free solo or not? Yeah. Yeah. Should people be free soloing? And I think specifically narrowing it down to this instance, a couple of things I would say is one, um, he told me while we were waiting for the EMTs that he fell when a hole broke off in his hand. And when I hadn't really thought about what he had been climbing until he said that. And then I looked up from where he had fallen and realized he was not on an established route. He was just in an, un, like kind of a, that wasn't established because it's chossy, chossy meaning like lots of rock that Loose could break rock. off. Yeah. Um, so there's that to begin with, of just kind of like, if you were to free solo, choosing something that, you know, um, there's not a huge potential for rock breakage, which you can never know that a hundred percent, but you can definitely know that, um, pretty well. Um, another thing is I mentioned this at the beginning, but, uh, the Southeast Climbers Coalition only owns the cliff line and the, um, path. So they do not own the top, which means you're not actually allowed to top out. Um, so I also don't really know like what his plan was in that way. Um, I never talked to him about it, but kind of just like, Picking your crag accordingly, I guess I would say, like that's just not necessarily an appropriate place to free solo because um, topping out would mean going onto private property, um, which would just generally mean like there's it's probably not the best place to be doing that if that's what you're going to do. Um, so those two things, like for his specific choices of being out there, and then other than that, you know, of course no one wants to get injured. No one is like. Right. going out and intending to. And also for him, I think part of the point of being on the unestablished route was that it was something that looked like 
he could climb and not have trouble with. Like with an ability um, level. Yeah. And so I, I get yeah. that aspect of it. Um, and I think that's just one of those things of like, maybe he just didn't, hadn't been climbing enough to kind of think that through of like, it's not actually, oh, wait, I don't see anything around, you know, I don't have the guidebook. I don't, I'm not looking at Mountain Project. I don't know that this is something established. Um, because there's plenty of other stuff he could have picked that would have probably been, you know, like I said, there's five threes and five fours. So I can see the like desire to free solo some of that easy stuff and like assume you could probably be fine. Um, so I totally, you know, see that. I think the other thing that really came to mind and you asked about how I felt like this affected my partner and me. Um, and what I spent a lot of time thinking about after with free soloing in general, because I think, you know, obviously free soloing has been a conversation that has been happening more in the climbing world. And, you know, I don't know what I want out of people <laughs> that free solo or what I want free solos to do, but I do think it's important to think about when someone goes to a crag to free solo, if they're going alone, the burden of responsibility, like where is the burden of responsibility for if something happens to you? And I guess what I'm saying is like, when I go to climb with my partner, Kendall, there's kind of this unsaid or said thing that like, if I fall and sprain my ankle, Kendall's going to help. <laughs> like we went out there together. We are going to help in the event of injury to each other. Um, and that's generally true of like climbing groups, right? You go out with other people. If someone's going to get injured, you're going to respond to each other's injuries. And you hear that a lot on this podcast, like an accident happens. The partners are the ones that respond. Oh, totally. If, if you go out to free solo alone um, with no support, what's your plan for response? Um, because it kind of becomes like this climber became our responsibility. And the devil's advocate argument could be that we didn't have to respond. Like we didn't have to help him. We could have just left. Um, but <laughs> I mean, that's probably not going to happen. Yeah. Like, like any normal, I mean, any de decently considerate person would respond. Right. Especially knowing, like, like I said, this land is owned by the Southeast Climbers Coalition, um, which is like our climbers coalition in the area. And I love them and I'm a member and I'm not, you know, this injury is happening on this land owned by our climbers coalition. And we don't, I'm not just going to ignore it, you know? And I understand that in theory, maybe I could, but I think as a free soloer, if you're to go out, um, just to have some sort of plan of either maybe you're going out free soloing with somebody else um, or you know exactly like you have a plan of exactly who should check up on you if they haven't heard from you like those kinds of things i think when you go to the crag alone if you're to get injured near somebody they're immediately going to become responsible for you right and so that was kind of the thing of like that was definitely frustrating um i'm not saying i minded responding necessarily like i was happy to i knew how to i obviously learned a lot from it no but i, I get what you're saying i get what you're saying in terms of like knowing your partner's experience level and yeah. also only going out with partners that you know can respond accordingly yeah if you're putting your trust you know you're putting so much trust in your partner yeah Right. And like, that's something, it's a conversation we have a lot in sport climbing of like, and it's been talked about on this podcast of like, sometimes the learning is that I shouldn't have gone out with that particular partner. Or like I should have 
been more willing to speak up to them. I should have asked more questions, those kinds of things. And so in free soloing, like when the risk of injury is so high, who's that person that's going to be there to respond to you? And in this case, he didn't have that. And so it became us. Um, And that I think is the pinnacle of like where I'm not saying you shouldn't free solo, but I'm saying that's the thing, the problem that needs to be solved if you're going to free solo. Like, how do you not make a potential injury the, the problem of a bystander? It's a huge question. Yeah. <laughs> and I hope that it, I hope that question that you ask does inspire a lot of conversation in our climate community. You know, like people can post on, you know, once I post this episode, people can comment and let's, let's raise a discussion about it. I have a, a private podcast, Sharp Bend podcast group mm-hmm. that you can uh, comment about it and let's, let's open the discussion. Cause that's a massive can of worms. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, be addressed. Yeah. And, and, and the, all that to say is like, it's no form of climbing is invalid and they all come with their risks, but it's just working out, you know, because sport climbing has such a culture around it that we have come to have so many systems for our risk management. Um, but what's of, the redundancy for free soloing? Yes, exactly. Yeah. What's the plan there? Um, because that was definitely a huge huge question. And I think definitely for this climber that went out, you know, he definitely didn't expect to get injured. And that was probably a huge part of the problem is he had, he was so, excuse me, he was so shocked and he had no idea what to do. Um, and luckily we were there. Um, and luckily the EMTs were able to get there quickly. And, you know, for all of the they still responded well. It was just a difficult situation when you have Metro, you know, city um, EMTs responding to something that's really more wilderness based. Well, thank you, Clara, for sharing that story. Yeah. And, you know, just for the respect of the um, free soloists that you um, that you witnessed fall and that, you know, you helped with the rescue, um, we explicitly decided to keep him anonymous just to respect his privacy mm-hmm. and so thank you for um for allowing that to happen um and thanks so much for being on the show thank you so much again to clara for sharing her story and her perspective on witnessing that free solo fall thank you to rocky talkie sterling rope and the american alpine club for believing in my podcast mission Did you know that the American Alpine Club has their own podcast? You can now take a deep dive into your favorite American Alpine Club content via your headphones and car stereo. The drive to work or your favorite hangboard routine just got way more interesting. Find the American Alpine Club podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Do you like my podcast? Please remember that I am one person doing this entire podcast. This is essentially a full-time job that I do for free in my spare time for you to learn from other people's accidents. So please sign up to support my podcast on patreon.com slash the sharp end. And as always, remember, play hard and be smart.